This episode is brought to you by Arcteryx. When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Hudon, a Yosemite big wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Cap in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow their story in Free As Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arcteryx. I watched the film over the summer. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure. And if you love this podcast, and especially if you loved my episode with Jordan Cannon, episode 115, one of my favorites, then I know you'll love the film. So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx, free as can be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, you can head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx, free as can be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Arcteryx presents free as can be, and we hope you enjoy the film. This episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. This stuff is my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for climbing. I use the repair cream almost every single night, all the time. I use it multiple times a night if I'm climbing in a sharp, crimpy area like Waco Tanks or Leavenworth or Smith Rock. If I come home from a day of climbing and my skin's torn up, I wash my hands and then I apply repair cream several times throughout the evening. And it really does wonders for helping my skin heal faster and getting me back on the rock the next day. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. And if you want to learn more about how to use Rhino products, I highly recommend an episode that I did with founder Justin Brown, who's a friend of mine, way back in episode 22. So you can check that out to learn more. One final time, rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. I have tried all of the training boards on the market. I love the moon board, tension, kilter, but the Grasshopper board is my favorite. I cannot wait to buy a house or property someday so I can own one of these so I can train on it every day. Why is it my favorite? Well, first things first, they got the basics right. You can actually warm up on this board, which is super critical. If, for instance, you're putting this thing in your garage and that's all you have to climb on, the LED lights are in the right spot. They're easy to see no matter where you are on the board and no matter what hold you're going to. The lights come out of the center of the hold and they're super easy to see. Also, the wall angle is super easy to adjust and you can tailor your session to exactly what you want to work on, the angles and types of holds that you want to work on for your training. Just those three things already set the grasshopper board apart. But more than that, I love the holds. As soon as I climbed on the grasshopper board, I could tell the folks at Grasshopper put a ton of thought into the hold shapes and the layout of their board. But as always, don't take my word for it. The folks at Grasshopper just want you to check out their board and try it for yourself. Be sure to check them out on Instagram at Grasshopper Climbing if you want to see the board in action. And you can visit their website at grasshopperclimbing.com to learn more and contact their sales team to find out which board solution might be right for you. And if you're ready to pull the trigger, be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, 
$500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8 by 10 foot grasshopper board. And you can save even more money if you upgrade to a larger board. Just tell them that you learned about the grasshopper board from the Nugget Climbing Podcast, and you'll save hundreds of dollars on your very own grasshopper board. Once again, you can check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing or at their website, grasshopperclimbing.com. And be sure to tell them I sent you. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Katie Lamb. If you don't know that name, Katie is one of the top female boulderers in the world. She's a professional climber. She also works part-time in climate science. It was super interesting to hear about her career and how she balances that with professional climbing. She's also had a hell of a couple years the last two years in her climbing in a good way, the last couple of years have been a major breakthrough for Katie climbing all of her hardest stuff. And I was really excited to talk to Katie and hear why, hear what made the difference and what led to her amazing success for the last couple of years. So we covered a lot of different topics in this conversation, chatted for a couple hours, and I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys find it interesting and helpful, and please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Katie Lamb. Are you in someone's garage right now? It looks like I am, but I'm actually just in their spare bedroom and it's like really just their gear closet. So okay. <laughs> looks like a garage. <laughs> nice. Where are you? I am, as you can see, I'm in my van. I am parked on the street at a room that I'm renting in St. George, Utah right now. Nice. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of like hard to find like a like quiet spot that you can record for a podcast length, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lucky for me, I'm. it's just me and my van, so that works out pretty well. But I know that is like two climbers talking to each other and trying to record something when we're both trying to travel and, and climb. I mean, that's just like the crux of this entire project, but somehow it always <laughs> so, works out. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of like surprised that more people don't have issues, but <laughs> that's cool. Well, yeah. I mean, you just don't hear about all that stuff, right? Like it's, yeah. it's surprisingly it doesn't happen too often, but, um, but yeah, sometimes there's, you know, shenanigans, logistics that gets edited out later, technical issues. That actually happened yesterday. I recorded with someone yesterday and uh, was trying to poach Wi-Fi from the house. Either that wasn't working or her internet wasn't working. It kept cutting out, but, you know, whatever, edit it later. No one will know. So uh -huh. how the sausage is made sort of thing. Uh-huh, totally. Yeah. Are you feeling better? Yeah, I am. I had like, I, I kind of just like went too hard last week and then had like a two day little head cold, but okay. I'm totally fine now. Good. Glad to hear it. Yeah. 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 Are you in good health? I think so. I, um, I think I'm getting over COVID actually, maybe, oh, God. but I don't know. Like I, I, um, this is the second time that I'm pretty sure that I've had COVID and uh -huh. have never tested positive for COVID despite taking quite a few tests. So I don't, I don't know what to make of that. Like, you know, the first time I was hanging out with someone who had COVID for an entire weekend and we were hugging and having meals together and then I got sick and I had the exact same symptoms and I tested negative like seven times. So I, I don't know. Um, very interesting. And then this time it, it's the same thing where like, I don't feel very bad, but I just don't really have that much energy, you know? 
Yeah. Have you had it? Have you had COVID? I have not. I'm I'm one of the few who've never gotten it, or at least I've never like thought I had it or tested positive, but I'm also like not very safe and like feel like I must have gotten it. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not not safe, but I'm not like that cautious. So uh-huh. maybe I've gotten it. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been traveling a fair bit the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's kind of weird. Like I thought I was fine. I thought I just had a little head cold and then I tried to go climbing and just kind of felt like I got hit by a car the next day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like, that's kind of weird. I, I felt, I feel pretty all right. Otherwise just like no energy, but interesting. that's not what we're here for. So um, <laughs> <laughs> we can just shelf all that. Um, thanks for being here. How's Bishop? It's great. Yeah. Um, it just kind of got dumped on like the day I got here. So haven't really climbed yet, but um, yeah, it's good to see snow in the mountains again. Mm. How long are you there for? Probably like a week and a half. Okay. Um, and then out to Vegas for the weekend and then back home to the East Coast for, or back home to my parents' house for like two weeks probably. And then probably back to Bishop. Okay. Yeah. Nice. I know you have a job these days. How do you make all that work? with a job are you working remotely while you're traveling yeah mm-hmm. i i work fully remote so honestly like a lot of it is just working like today i worked the whole day i guess it's only like 2 p.m but for me that's like a full day of <laughs> working and not climbing um so yeah it's kind of just like a day of climbing a day of work repeat gotcha that's cool i want to i want to hear more about the work that you do and your work-life balance later in the conversation Before that, I want to talk all about your climbing. Obviously, I have so many questions for you. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. And before that, the place I want to start actually is with sewing. I have a quote in front of me that says, uh, this is talking about you, Katie. It says, she is probably the only person who has ever dirtbagged with a sewing machine in the backseat of her lifted Toyota Prius. And she is usually wearing some handmade garment in her send videos. Tell me about <laughs> sewing. Oh, that's definitely from my mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Like, who else knows that? Um, no, um, I'm, I'm probably not the first person to like carry a sewing machine in their car or van or whatever. There's got to be someone else out there. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I uh, that's, that's a great place to start. I'm, um, really into sewing and um, I kind of started sewing when I was maybe in elementary school my mom and my grandma taught me how and yeah I've never done anything like professional or like sold clothes really um, it's like mostly just like making my own clothes repairing clothes and then like gifts for friends and yeah it's just a fun like non-climbing non-work activity that I love doing and honestly wish I had way more time for mm. And it's a fun way, I think, to like have a, a style that's totally unique and catered to your very specific tastes. So, yeah, it's 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 cool. Like when people are like, oh, like, where'd you get that? And I'm like, oh, I made it like you can make one, too, if you want it. <laughs> do you make things from scratch? Do you tailor clothes from secondhand stores? What, what do you like to do? All the above? Yeah, um, I think my normal flow is like I'll find like something that I like either that I already own, like a shirt that fits really well or something or like pants that I saw someone wearing and I'll cut out 
my own like pattern pieces based on like how the how the garment um, is shaped. So I'll literally like trace paper over the garment and then um, like cut that out of fabric and kind of like, yeah, sew it all together the way I think it should fit together. Um, and that works pretty well. And then sometimes I'll take like a online like pattern um, that I find and, and I'll adjust it a little bit um, for the fit that I want. And so that, and sometimes it's just like, yeah, like tailoring something I already have. So not like from scratch necessarily. What is the thing that you've made that you've been proudest of? Do you have a garment or anything else that you're most proud of in your sewing? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, or most psyched about maybe? Yeah, I made these um, I made these white pants that I climb in and I originally didn't really like them. Like they, I like, I don't know. I had this vision for how they would fit and they don't fit like that. Um, they're like, kind of like a Carhartt, like um, five pocket work pant, but they're like an elastic waistband and they also shrunk a little bit more than I thought. So they're kind of like floods. And also I wear them climbing. So they're just like disgustingly stained. And, <laughs> and I like, didn't really like them at first, but still wore them. And then like, people were like, these are really cool pants. And I was like, you know what? I think they're kind of cool too. <laughs> I'm happy with those <laughs> at this point, but yeah, I mean, they weren't the hardest to make. I don't know what's it's like been like technically the hardest thing I've made, but yeah, it just depends. Like, so I, I feel like my own opinions on, um, on my clothes that I make like fluctuates pretty quickly. Okay. Okay. So you're psyched on something and then not or vice versa. Yeah. And um. it also like maybe depends like how, um, how, like the occasions I've worn them on, like mm. I've just worn these pants everywhere and they just always do the trick and they're just reliable and, um, and I'm not afraid to stain them anymore. So mm -hmm. they're great pants. <laughs> I think it's interesting how clothes can carry their own like climbing inertia, you know, like sometimes totally. I'll go through phases of having like a favorite sending shirt that's just like, for whatever reason, this trip to Bishop or this trip to Waco, it's just this purple shirt. It's like doing the job. Every time I mm -hmm. wear it, I just feel awesome and I send yeah. something. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Are the white pants, would I recognize them from any of your videos? Are they featured in anything? Where we could see them? Probably. I wear them a lot. I'm trying to think. I think in the video of Dominator, I'm wearing them. Okay. Yeah. That was maybe like one of their inaugural prayers. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do some digging. I would love to share some uh, content of you and your homemade clothes for people listening Great. to this. There's also, okay, so there's another little curiosity buried in that quote that I read. Uh, your lifted Toyota Prius is a lifted Toyota Prius a good crag car? Or is that still what you're Definitely. driving around in? Yeah. Okay, tell me about that. Driving. Um, yeah, well, if you live in California or really anywhere right now, gas is extremely expensive. And I can't afford an electric vehicle at this point. So, yeah, I, I like kind of like ripping around in a Prius. It, it kind of, uh, it's a lot speedier than like a van or a four-wheel drive car. Um but like your average Prius is like a pain to get down like any dirt road, like buttermilk road was kind of my baseline. I was like, I need to be able to get down buttermilk road without like being stressed about bottoming out or anything. So I think for my graduation present or something, um, my dad got my Prius a little lift job in, uh, in Boulder. Um, I think it's like I, the, the garage was great. It was like 
maybe it was specific to Priuses or uh, or like hybrid vehicles or something, but it's in Boulder and they did a great job. And now I don't bottom out the Prius. And the great thing about the Prius is that you can also sleep in it. The back, if you don't have the um, the like electric hybrid one and you just have the pure hybrid, then the back folds down flat so you can sleep in it. I guess if you're tall, you can't, but small people can. And then I have a little hitch on the back with a, like, I call it the cage, but it's like, it has a name. It's a car pod. That's what it is. Car pod. Um, okay. Car pod. Yeah. And it, it perfectly fits two five inch big organic pads. So nice. I put pads in there and then, yeah, I think I can get like six or seven pads in my Prius without ratcheting to the top, which is pretty great. Wow. Six or seven yeah. pads. Okay, that was going to be my next question. So two five-inch pads on the back in the car pod attached to the trailer hitch. Where do the rest of them go? Just in the back seat? Yeah, like if you fold down the, the back seats, you can get like two more like lying down in the back. And then like you can get a small going vertical and then a small in like the footbed of the back seats. And then like, a smaller two in the front seat. So like some configuration <laughs> of, of that will, will get the job done. <laughs> I love it. That's so funny. I mean, crash pads, those are always the crux, right? Like even being in a van, being a full-timer in a van, that's a big consideration. Like a van's obviously plenty of room, but um, but crash pads can eat up your storage space so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm yeah, always curious about how people too. how people do that. Have you Have you lived in the Prius aside from just shorter trips here and there? No, not really. I'm not, I'm definitely not a full-time Priuser. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That would be an exaggeration, but I mean, I have met people who, who are like fully functional out of their like Prius or other little sedan, which is impressive. Totally impressive. I know those of you out there who are making it happen in your little Priuses or Honda Accords or whatever you're doing, we see you always impressive yeah. <laughs> to see what people are willing to do to go climbing. <laughs> You're the realist out there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, totally. Okay, let's talk about your rock climbing. I was actually surprised to learn in prepping for this that the first half of your climbing was sport climbing because um, you've come on, you've come so strongly onto my radar and probably so many people listening to this, um, their radars in the last few years with your bouldering accomplishments. It's incredible to see how you've kind of broken out in the last few years and quickly established yourself as one of the top female boulders in the world. Um, yeah. So I'll just start with that. Your tick list from the last few years is amazing. And I'm really excited to hear some of the things that you think about with your, with your bouldering philosophy and what has made that difference for you. If, if that's a question that makes sense, but, um, let's start at the beginning and give a little bit of a background. Tell me about the transition point. I think that's what I'm most interested in. You were a sport climber as a kid. When did you fall in love with outdoor bouldering? How and when did that come about? Yeah, I think when I was probably like 16, I feel like my sport climbing plateaued pretty hard. And I've been making like pretty steady progress um, outdoors, at least up until then. Um, And I was primarily climbing in Rumney, New Hampshire, since I grew up on the East Coast. And in Rumney, it's extremely bouldery like maybe the most bouldery sport climbing you can find but um i like i was climbing pretty hard but i was only bouldering maybe like v8 like the crux moves were like v8 
And um, I could do a V8, like extremely pumped, but I couldn't do like a V9. Mm. Um, So I started bouldering. And yeah, I think it was just like kind of exposure to outdoor bouldering and like also wanting to make my sport climbing better just made me like kind of fall in love with bouldering. And yeah, I haven't really looked back since then. I don't, I don't really sport climb anymore. Um, that's not true. Actually, I sport climb like once a year and sometimes I'll sport climb in the gym, but I haven't had a sport climbing project ever since I started bouldering. <laughs> so I guess I didn't really accomplish my goal of like, of like getting better at outdoor sport climbing, but, uh, but it was all for the best. Got you. You were, you were initially trying to focus on bouldering to level up your sport climbing and then you just got sucked in. Mm-hmm. All in on yeah, bouldering. Exactly. Okay. Were you a competition kid at all as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, I did the youth comps. Yeah, I did every every year until I was like 18. Um, so like 8 through 18 of youth comps. And I did some adult comps. And I think I stopped like fully in like 2018 or 19. Okay. Why did you stop? Uh, the adult, the adult ones just weren't for me, really. They're like a lot more intense. And, um, I liked seeing my friends at the youth comps and kind of like lost touch, I guess, with the scene a little bit. And you, you, you like have to put in a lot of training at like doing comp boulders to be good at comps. And I was not into that. And I don't think it translates very well to like also being good at outdoor climbing. Um, at least for me, it never did. So it wasn't ever like a priority after I was done with youth. And also I think like I, I kind of just lost my competitive spirit a little bit. Like I can't really like try hard in the same way when I'm in the gym or in a comp. And I kind of think that like doing well in competitions is all about like just figuring out how to try hard in your like five minute period. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I just don't really have the right attitude for it anymore. Got it. Okay. I imagine growing up as a kid and spending more of your rock climbing time, sport climbing at Rumney, and then exploring outdoor bouldering more and settling into that, falling in love with that, whatever. I imagine that there must have been some sort of identity shift at some point, like identifying as a sport climber. And then, you know, a few years later, all of a sudden realizing like, oh, I'm, I'm a boulderer now. Was there a moment? Was there a specific climb or accomplishment or trip experience that led to that switch being flipped or was it just oh I really like this I'm going to keep doing this and then you know a few years later realizing oh I never went back to sport climbing I'm just I just this is what I focus on now how do you think about that yeah that's a good question um it's kind of funny like people identifying as maybe you don't yeah yeah Yeah, no, I guess I kind of do. I don't know. Um, What's funny is like, I think I'm actually like way more like naturally good at sport climbing. Like when I go on my like once a year sport climbing trip, it comes back to me a lot faster. And I think like relative to bouldering grades, um, I can kind of like ramp up faster. Um, So yeah, it, it is funny that I don't know, maybe just my like background in sport climbing makes it come back faster. But I do think that I have a good head for it. Um, and yeah, I would say that I, I switched to identifying as a boulder, <laughs> as you say, in, uh, when I went to college probably, um, and probably because it's like way harder if you're a college student to get a delay partner. Um, and so like even sport climbing in the gym becomes harder, like everyone just wants to boulder, which is kind of great. It's like, 
I don't know, you shouldn't need to have a partner to like go climbing. So I was just only going on bouldering trips, only bouldering in the gym. And it's also a really good way to make friends in college. Like a lot of people who are new to climbing, like enter through bouldering. And there's just like so many students who boulder. Mm. Okay. You, you talked about how when you started transitioning from sport climbing, you were, you know, bouldering V8, able to do that pumped on a route, but that was your level. Where do you think you're at when you were at the start of college? And then I'm curious where you got to by the end of college. Yeah, I probably, I think I'm, I probably climbed like V10 when I started college, um, like outdoor V10. I think I like my first climbing trip in college, I think I went to Bishop and like could definitely do the moves on evolution to the lip. And like, I feel like I did like a V10 that trip maybe, but that was like my limit. Like that was like the, my project in grade. And then when I finished school, well, when I finished undergrad, I climbed probably, I guess I was like start of COVID, like V13, maybe not, maybe V12. And then when I finished my master's, that was, I climbed like 13 or 14. Okay. Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, not a surprise at all, but I really want to hear, I think what what would be really interesting to explore with you is your climbing philosophy and also your superpowers. That's something I'm curious about with you. You know, those could be physical things physical strengths that you have learned how to utilize really well in approaching outdoor boulder problems or psychological, tactical, whatever. Basically, like, what is it that's made the difference? You've really broken out in the last couple of years and established yourself as one of the top climbers in the world, which is amazing. And you've been the top female boulderer on 8a.nu for a couple of years now. I think you've climbed five V14s basically in the last year or or basically within a year. I think you did your first one in July of 2021 and then climbed five of them um, within like 13 months or something, which is just amazing. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. Um, but I'm asking too many questions at once. Maybe first things first, let's talk about your climbing philosophy. How would you describe your climbing philosophy and what sets it apart from other climbers when it comes to the mainstream climbing culture, what's popular right now, what other people are doing. I know that you're, you feel as though yours is unique or different or, or not kind of the typical thing that we're seeing on Instagram a lot these days. How would you describe it? Yeah. Um, I think that first of all, it's like, I'm extremely self-motivated and in times when I felt motivated to do something for, um, external reasons or yeah just felt external pressure to um, pursue something then it hasn't panned out um and so it's something i've learned that like if i don't have the um the self-motivation and like you know the inner fire to do it then it's not going to happen and i think that i still derive just a lot of joy out of climbing and i think i like it more than i ever have um and i've been climbing for like 14 years now and yeah i think Every day I continue to like climbing more, um, which is amazing. And yeah, it's just a sustainable mindset. And yeah, I think that like, I, I, I think it's a lie to say I'm not motivated by grades. Like I love um, like figuring out like moves that I didn't think I can do and like 
sequences that felt impossible that now feel easy. Um, like I, I love that like light bulb moment um, that you get with pushing physical limits and trying grades that are hard for you. But I also think that that needs to meet with like being really inspired by the line and the area and um, yeah, kind of doing it for more than just the grade. Mm. Okay. A couple of things came up for me listening to you say all that. Do you have a specific story of, or an example of feeling pressured to do something from other people or from something external to yourself and that not panning out? And was there a moment that you realized like, oh, I need to follow my own inspiration, my own intrinsic motivation? I think like with comps, that's like one example. Like I just felt like I should do them and wasn't doing very well, but felt like I was like climbing better. And I think like, I don't know, like nobody was pressuring me to do comps, but like at comps, you feel a lot of pressure to like do better than other people. (laughs) Um, So I don't know if like I've ever felt like nobody's ever told me like you need to do this, like this climbing thing or like you need to climb this boulder. Like that's never happened. Um, But there is like kind of expectations you put on yourself that like when you actually think about it, don't actually matter to you. Like, I guess, for example, like, um, I started trying like Jade because I knew I could climb D14 and that was like a test piece. And, um, yeah. And I was like, I know I can do this. Like I've tried this, I tried it the year before and I felt like close. So I was like, I'm going to do it this year. Um, and I kind of had this deadline of like needing to, well, this (laughs) sounds dumb, but like needing to go to Europe because I had a flight booked, which, you know, is a deadline. It's just like a super nice, friendly deadline. That sounds very fun. Right, right, right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but yeah I I kind of had like you know four weeks or whatever to be in Colorado and do it and felt this like pressure to to get it done and had a really good first couple sessions and then kind of couldn't repeat the crux move Um, and kind of had this moment of being like it's okay if I don't do it like it's in Colorado like I love coming to Colorado and like I'll definitely be back and nobody cares if you do Jade or not like you're going, you're hiking an hour every day because you want to do it, not because mm. like anyone else wants you to do it. Um, and then I think like kind of like having that realization of like, this is all so trivial, like, you know, every climbing goal that we set for ourselves, like doesn't actually matter, but it also like so deeply does matter to like who you are and like how you feel about yourself um which is like a realization that you need to have if you're like trying hard boulders so um yeah I think that was maybe like one of the first examples where I realized that like it had to be for myself and because I like being in chaos canyon um every other day and like you know feeling like the lightning storms are getting extreme but like I'm still up here (laughs) um so yeah kind of like just enjoying that like I get to hike into the alpine every day and test myself like mentally and physically and hang out with friends um which is really special that is the great paradox of performance climbing isn't it I mean that's come up that's such a theme it's come up so much on the podcast and so much in climbing media and in climbing stories and and storytelling in general is like to climb at our best we need to want it so much and not need to do it and like holding those two things at the same time, I think is really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also like something that like, it's really hard to find like in your workplace or like in any other pursuit, like Mm. for work, 
like half of my issue is that like other people want something from me and it's not like it makes me not want to do it but like it's something very special about like having a goal that's entirely Mm self-motivated i want to hear more about colorado and something i have on my list here is uh nothing but sunshine i wonder if you could tell me about doing that boulder because it seems like that i don't want to project onto you you tell me but it seems like that might have been a big pivotal moment in your climbing did it feel that way yeah um that was my first v13 so it was pivotal for that reason and it's probably still like my the boulder i've put the the most number of sessions into um i tried it in 2019 Um, summer of 2019 for the first time. Um, I was living in Denver and working an internship in Golden. And so like twice a week, I would go after work to the park and try, among other things, I was trying nothing but sunshine because like it's in lower chaos and you can get there after work in a reasonable amount of time. And like, you can like be up there with relatively few pads. So Yeah. And I I did want to climb like B13 because there's a lot of B13s in Colorado that are like just accessible and in a lot of different styles. So um, that's not something that you get as much in California. But um, yeah, I I tried it maybe like 10 sessions or something over the course of the summer. And it was like the hardest boulder I'd tried at the time in a real way. Um, and I could do all the moves and I like, couldn't really consistently do the first move. So it was like extremely frustrating and it was hard to walk away from. And then I came back the next summer and it was like the COVID summer, like that first summer when everything was like pretty unclear. Um, and I was with a big group of friends. We were living in Estes Park and we would just like meet up with a few people in, in the Alpine. Like we would kind of regularly like meet up with like, Brooke and Natalia and Alex Puccio and it was like just it was just fun like kind of squad sessions in like a time when it was hard to go climbing and um yeah when everything kind of felt a little absurd um and that summer I did it maybe like second session so it felt like a very tangible like level up in like mental mental and physical ability Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, obviously as an accomplishment, that's incredible. I'm curious about that first summer because you, <laughs> it's I got a message from your mom. Your mom is a, a diehard fan of the podcast and a supporter on Patreon. So thanks to her very much for that. But she's also- as you all should be. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. But she's also a massive fan of you, of course. And um, she sent me a very fun- message sharing a lot about you, which I'm drawing from right now in this conversation. But talking about nothing but sunshine, you know, she mentioned, yes, you were 2019, summer of 2019, you were in Golden doing that internship. And you just said, you know, it was in lower chaos, which wasn't too bad to get to. But if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I, I've climbed up there a fair bit. And so from Golden, that's got to be like a two hour drive. And then the hike's like an hour. And it's not a terribly hard hike, but it's it's a significant hike, especially with pads. And then, you know, she mentioned you're driving up there like twice a week. She'd climb all night, sometimes by herself. Of course, this is your mom talking about you. Uh, drive back to Golden early in the morning. And 
you know, she's worried about you driving all those hours at night by yourself and trying it by yourself and potential mountain lions, potential injuries up there being by yourself, car accidents, strange men, you know, your mom had all these concerns for you at the time. But, and it's interesting, like that's, that's a pretty rare person that's willing to go to such lengths to try a boulder problem when being in Golden, there's likely a lot of other things you could go try. No conditions probably wouldn't wouldn't have been as good in other areas, but I just, I guess I'm curious about that. Like what, what did that feel like to you? Did you enjoy that process? Is there some, is there some deep drive in you that made that feel just inevitable? Like I want to go do this thing, so I'll do whatever it takes. Or did you have to talk yourself into those missions? Did you enjoy the process? Just, I'm just curious to hear more about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I really did enjoy that, actually. Um, I, I never had to talk myself into it. Um, I Well, for one, I hate being in offices. That's also why I work remote, because I like cannot sit there for eight hours. And I just get like so antsy and like, like you could be like, let's go do anything and I would do it. So it was like every day that I was like going out climbing, I was just so excited to like get my work done and leave. Um, and yeah, I would leave around like three. So it wasn't like I was, I was actually staying till five. Like I wasn't the best intern. I was sleeping <laughs> at three every day. Um, but um, yeah, it was like, it, and I think there's just like this aspect of like, I kind of like adventure bouldering as I call it. Um, like, I don't know, I, I liked driving and like, you know, beating the storm or, or not beating the storm and like <laughs> doing the hike. And then like, okay, I'm back in Denver at 4 a.m. And I'm like eating falafels because this random place is open till 4 a.m. And like that feeling of just like, yeah, like I'm core, like (laughs) I'm doing this, (laughs) which is funny because it's bouldering. But um, (laughs) no, I I, I like that feeling. (laughs) That's awesome. I totally resonate. I, I think climbing in the park is one of my favorite things that I've kind of discovered in climbing I you know it was it was only last summer that I did that for the first time and um projected Eternia and it took me 11 days to do it that's an upper chaos so it was and I was living in Estes so it wasn't as epic of an outing but um I don't enjoy type 2 or type 3 fun really I don't enjoy suffering in general I have no desire to go climb on the diamond I got invited by a bunch of friends this summer to go do that. And I was like, no, I don't really want to do that. But something about bouldering in the Alpine, it's still really rewarding. And you feel like you did something pretty badass and cool and you're out there in the mountains. But then it's still like the comfort and the simplicity of bouldering at the same time. I really like that pairing. I think that's a really, really Mm -hmm. fun combination. Yeah. 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 Like you get like a little adventure in by like kind of making your drive and doing your hike. And then like, yeah, that other part of bouldering that I really like, which is like problem solving and like being social, like, and like chilling at the boulder, like that also happens. So yeah, that's also, I like the park. It's just like a little bit more adventurous. Can you describe one of those outings in more detail? Just the steps that it took to get up there to try this thing? Yeah. Um, like, as I said, I would, <laughs> I would leave golden around three after a hard work day. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I was doing a good job, but, um, (laughs) and, um, I would drive out to Estes, which I feel like is like two hours from Golden, like to Bear Lake parking, probably two hours. Um, 
so I'd get there at five and then I would like pack up my stuff, like hike up there. I think I was, I was probably doing the hike in like half an hour um, nice. when I was in shape. Yeah. yeah. That's not, that's pretty good to lower. Yeah. Um, and yeah, sometimes people would come with me. I think a lot of times people, people came with me, like met me in Estes or wherever they're coming from. My brother was working in Boulder. So sometimes we would kind of like link up and go climbing. Um, and then yeah, on like a nothing but sunshine day, I would probably like warm up and then go go there and probably try until like nine or ten, maybe probably closer to ten, like a couple hours after sunset, which is pretty late in the summer there. Um, and there was oftentimes people in lower, so it felt less like. I don't know, like, oh my God, I'm like in this canyon in the dark alone. Mm, um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's kind of fun. Like people in Colorado really get after it. Um, so yeah, I feel like, like one night, I think I saw like Matt Fultz at, I don't think, I think it was maybe at Jade or something. And he was like, oh, are you like wrapping up? Like maybe we should like hike down together. And I was like, oh, it's okay. Like, I don't know what I'll be done. So you should just go. And he was like, no, like, <laughs> I like don't I, he wasn't like scared of the bears but he was like it's probably like best not to like because of the animals and stuff and I was like you know what you're right like if you're a little afraid I should probably be a little afraid. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah I'd hike out like a couple hours after dark and then drive back because I was living in Denver so I'd drive back to Denver and like everything in Boulder is closed at like 10 p.m so I'd go all the way back to Denver and then there's this place next to my house called Jerusalem's um, which if it's still around, you should definitely go because <laughs> I don't know why, but it is open like at all hours of the night. Um, and it's pretty good and pretty cheap. That's so. where you would get your falafels. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good to yeah. know. Yeah. I, that's really funny. I had that thought last summer. I, like I said, I was doing all those, those days in upper and a lot of them were night sessions just because of the weather and things. And there were a bunch of times where I was up there alone, hiking back at like, you know, midnight, one in the morning, whatever, uh, down from upper. And I had that thought a bunch of times, like, am I just comfortable? Am I comfortable with this? And is that like a cool thing that I'm comfortable being up here in the mountains, being alone and hiking out in the dark? Or is this just total ignorance? Like, is this actually really sketchy? And are there like mountain lions, like, creeping on me right now and watching my little headlight like I still don't know I'm like was that was that totally fine or was that sketchy and I'm just being really ignorant I don't don't actually know how like concerned I should be up in the mountains like that yeah I think you're probably fine in chaos I don't really know I guess I'm not like the most cautious person but yeah seems okay (laughs) yeah you'd think so right there's enough traffic up there it'd probably scare scare those critters away yeah okay let's talk about breakthroughs because so that was summer of 2019. You sent Nothing But Sunshine in 2020, summer of 2020. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So since then, you've done a dozen V13s. You've flashed V11. You did your first V14 in 2021, end of July with Jade. And then you've done five total since then. And it's only been a little over a year. That's massive. That is such incredible progress. And I'm just curious what you would attribute that to. Is there anything or things in particular that you would point to? Or is it just that's the trajectory you were on and and now you're where you are? Yeah. Did that question um, make any sense? <laughs> no, it definitely did. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, 
but first of all, thank you. That that's nice of you to say. Um, and I think that like, yeah, you can't discount like how much time school takes. Like any student who is getting out, that that's great. You're impressive. Like it's really hard to have enough time for for life when you're in school. Um, so I think that like probably around my senior year, I stopped trying as hard in school and <laughs> kind of started this shift of like kind of restructuring my life to go climbing, um, which is like something I feel like I've talked to a few people about, like not everyone is a pro climber, but there are a lot of people out there who structure their lives, like, like with their first priority being climbing, Mm. which is pretty cool. Like that's like pretty unique in the sport, I think. Um, and yeah, I think I had this moment where I just like realized I was really excited about climbing, um, and kind of like prioritized, like, going on trips like there was like this week before COVID actually uh, when I was a senior in undergrad where I like was in Bishop for a weekend and then kind of like met a friend out there for the first time and like made a new friend who was going to Vegas my friend Will and he was like you should just come to Vegas like I'm going to Vegas this week and I'm like well I have school like I should go back and then I just didn't and it was actually my last week of school in person um but it was kind of this moment where I was like you know what like yes school is probably more important than climbing but like this is kind of what my gut says to do Hmm. um and yeah I think that's like kind of a small example of like kind of realigning priorities and um prioritizing climbing and just like i think through doing that i made a lot more time for myself um to go climbing and have always had this philosophy that like to get better at rock climbing on rock you should go rock climbing so that just like requires a lot of time and i think like what i can probably attribute most to my progress is like spending so much time on rock and like having that time be really intentional. Like nowadays, like when I'm working, I can get out for a couple hours at the end of the day. And I feel like those days I'm like really focused on like, okay, making the most of this time and like, yeah, learning not only on that project, but like learning for the long run in like ways that will benefit me down the road. I love that. I am fascinated by that. I want to talk a lot more about that. What are specific examples of that? Like if you're going out for a two to three hour session, what might you be, what's an example? Like what might be a really focused climbing session? Um, Yeah, like I think first of all, like I love climbing with friends, um, but I also definitely notice myself more focused when I'm either climbing alone or like everyone at the boulder is focused on doing the boulder. Um, but I mean, I love climbing with friends and like, I love when people are just like hanging out <laughs> too. But, um, I think like kind of talking through micro movements with people and like, uh, can kind of for better or worse, like videoing every try and like making sure you know why you fell and like why some tries were better than others. And, um, yeah, like kind of the cliche, like micro beta things, like, where exactly is your hand or your foot on the hold and could it be better? And like even things like what shoes are you wearing and like skin tactics um, and like creating good conditions for yourself. Um, Yeah. Like just like really diving into the nitty gritty um, instead of kind of like going out and giving goes and not being really intentional about um, why you're falling or why you're succeeding. 
Got it. Okay. And this is perfect. This really gets to the breakthrough thing. I mean, this is really what I'm curious about at the core of seeing your last couple of years and how successful they've been. Have you gotten stronger from spending so much time on rock or is it just learning all of these little things that you're talking about and having the focus be so much higher or, or so much more detailed? Um, or is it just having more time not being in school yeah. anymore? Or is it a combination of all those things? Yeah, um, it's definitely a combo of all of them, but I think I ha- I've definitely gotten stronger um, in terms of like basic metrics that I have for myself. Like my one arm hangs on a hangboard have gotten better and I can do like a one arm pull up bunny charm now. And um, like, yeah, kind of like basic gym metrics. I've gotten better at them without actually working on them that much. Um, not to say that I don't work on them at all, but I think like proportional to the number of hours I've put in to actually like getting better at that exercise, like my improvement has been larger. And, but I think also um, like my improvement in outdoor um, progress is bigger than my improvement in like strength metrics. Mm. So that was maybe all like a little confusing, but I think <laughs> that like, <laughs> first of all, like learning and learning how to rock climb is like the number one thing. Second is like, I actually am stronger from spending more time climbing. And then like third, I have more time um, than I did in school. And so I have more time to like train and put in sessions. Mm. Can I summarize all that back to you and make sure that I am understanding it and we can clarify things? Because something that we haven't said yet that I know from doing our pre-interview is that you don't like the climbing gym. You, I I think that's what I remember. You don't like the climbing gym. You prefer to spend time outside. I love what you just said about if you want to get better at rock climbing, your philosophy, like you just need to do it a lot more. Um, That makes perfect sense. So it sounds like that's your focus. You do still supplement with some of these training exercises, but it sounds like you've made a lot more progress in them than you would think given the amount of time you've done them. So probably some of that strength is coming from the time spent outside on rock. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then like the amount of strength probably doesn't explain the improvement in your actual performance. And probably a lot of that's coming from some other factors too. Yeah. Okay. And I think also just to clarify, it's not that I don't like the climbing gym. Like I think that the climbing gym can be like extremely fun. Like when you're like going in for a casual session, I think it's just like the like months of training where you're like only in the gym. Like I can't really do that. Mm -hmm. What does the balance look like for you? Um, Yeah. It's something I'm still trying to like figure out. I think ideally I would do a month in the gym and then a month outside. And I think realistically it turns into like a month in the gym and then two months outside with a few like gym sessions and strength training um, kind of like mixed into there. What about like when you're in Berkeley, are you trying to get outside locally or are you saving it up for trips mostly? Um, I'm not really getting out like in a like super local sense, like I'll do a week or two in Yosemite, which is like most people wouldn't really say is local. It's like three or four hours. Um, but I'll, I'll go out to Yosemite for yeah, a couple of weeks and then I'll come back to the gym for a week or if, or if Yosemite's bad, then I'll do all my time in the gym when I'm in Berkeley. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. I want to talk more about some of your superpowers. Um, 
And again, this could be physical traits, like movement things, ways that you try to uh, fit boulders into your style and, and utilize your strengths. Or it could be psychological, tactical tricks that you've learned, things like that. I want to hear, basically, what I'm the question I'm getting at is, what are some of the things that you do to get the most out of your own personal performance potential? Yeah. Um, I mean, probably like what I'm best at is like, like crimping and like that style of climbing. Um, and I think that my finger strength isn't actually that good, but, uh, the actual like mechanics of crimping, I think I'm good at like, um, it's very hard to like put into words, like, but like, there's something about like just how you crimp and like the position of your fingers or like how you're grabbing the hold or kind of at what point you're like putting force through your fingers like that feels very um like I don't know intuitive to me and like I feel like people have said like oh you crimp or like you're grabbing that hold kind of weird or like whatever and I can't really explain like why um but I think that there's just like this learned skill with crimping and then I think like what goes hand in hand with like good crimping is good skin. And I pretty much never let my skin get bad. Like if I split a tip, it's like pretty devastating to me. Um, like I'll take a week off that boulder. Um, and yeah, I just never really let myself, um, like go to the point where I like split a tip, but I am good at like going until my skin is bad, but like to a point where I can like recover. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's actually like a little bit more of an art than people give it credit for. Um, and I'm good at like the maintenance, the skin maintenance on rest days, like um, kind of achieving the right level of moisture and dryness. And um, yeah, like making sure your skin is regrowing. Um, so probably like crimping is the obvious, like as you say, it's superpower. And then I think like in obvious would be like, I'm I'm pretty good at using bad feet and finding feet that work for me um my knees are actually like really messed up and they point inwards um because my hips are like too flexible or something so I'm very good at drop knees and I try to like find drop knees as much as possible and I'm really actually my weakness is open hip climbing like like think like Daniel Woods like really good at climbing open hip and like kind of taloning down um so that's something I'm trying to get better at um but I still like to like play to this strength of of um, turning my hips in and drop knees. And then I think my final superpower would be underclings because I have short arms. So if you have short arms, you should go for the underclings. <laughs> <laughs> How tall are you, Katie? I'm 5'5". Five, five. And what is your ape index? Um, even, I think. Even, okay. Maybe like minus half an inch because I used to be 5'4". Oh. So, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just stand up straighter now. I don't know. I, I grew like I grew like an inch in my twenties at some point. That's fascinating. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if that was just like getting out of school or something like that. I, I think it probably was. Like I used to spend all my time like slouched in like a classroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Amazing. So many things to touch on there. So crimping. That's funny. What you just described actually is making me think a lot about my conversation with Aiden Roberts. Uh-huh. Yeah, because that was so interesting and and that was such a great example of someone drawing this, um, I guess, distinguishing between like finger strength and then being able to crimp 
very well. You know, those those sound the same on the surface, but Aiden is someone who he's very impressive on a hangboard, but he's not as impressive on a hangboard as you would think that he is, given that he just climbed V17. But he understands his own finger mechanics and knows exactly how to use his fingers in very specific ways and has kind of like designed his entire climbing style around that, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's like a the next level of like nuance and detail um, where most people are just thinking like, can I hang on with more weight or not? I mean, that's that's me. I'm a perfect example of that. Like Aiden started to help me shift and start to appreciate like my own finger anatomy and how to like what's happening, I guess, when I have trouble holding on to holds and why I feel strong on certain holds and what the difference is there. I know this is really hard to describe on a podcast, but what do you mean? Like when someone says, oh, you're grabbing that crimp weird, what does that look like? Yeah, um, I think like at the highest level, like maybe um, maybe one person, their strongest finger is their middle finger. But for me, my strongest finger is always my pointer finger. And I think with my pointer finger, like that's how I lead my hand with my pointer finger. So maybe they have their middle finger on this like spike or bump in the hold because that's their strongest finger. Um, But for me, maybe I'll move my hand like one finger to to the right, let's say, so that my pointer is on the like best part of the hold. Um, So I think like that's like, that's the highest level is like where on the crimp is your hand and then like the next is like I feel like there's this like there's this thing where some people like really spread their fingers when they're crimping like it's like a claw kind of and then other people are like very like fingers together like every finger's touching each other um and I think it just depends like what type of hold like I don't think one is better than the other but kind of like recognizing how you're putting force through each of your fingers and it's not like I'm standing there being like oh I maybe have too much force through my pinky like let's transfer force it's like it's just intuitive I guess but like kind of being willing to like think about um a whole differently or just try something new um I think is a great way to like learn about um crimping I guess um I mean honestly Aiden probably has like a lot more thoughts and better words to <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah I think like that type of thing like like looking at video and like seeing like how your hands look different than someone else's um or like maybe your wrist position needs to change like based on like which foothold you're using or if you're like open hip or or closed hip or like side hip um and I think yeah wrist position probably has a lot to do with it too okay Gotcha. I mean, I guess know thyself. Maybe that's like a way to yeah, kind of yeah. summarize that is really pay attention to like what is happening for you and what works for you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess, for example, like I really like taking holds as much, like kind of like pulling outwards, like kind of like Gaston as possible versus like straight down. Hmm. And I think that's maybe because like my like interior like pec is like stronger in that position. I have no idea, but. I know I kind of like, like grabbing holds like that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me want to ask you one of these listener questions. I have a handful of listener questions for you. And, um, this is something I wanted to talk to you about too, your injury this spring and then projecting book club, how your injury led to trying book club. Um, we can add some, we can, we can back up and add some context in a second, but I like this question from Justin. 
how would Katie describe her climbing style? I think we just covered that. And then Justin asks, how much time would she say she tries climbs that fit her style versus ones that challenge it? To what extent is that conscious versus just going with the flow? Do you seek out climbs that are that expand your your comfort zone and your style versus, you know, or do you prefer to focus on things that suit you? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think when I'm in like a kind of like home area, like somewhere in California or in Yosemite, for example, like I will try to seek out climbs that I know will be hard for me um, it, because like I know I'll be a better climber if I do them. But always it feels pretty good to like climb stuff in your style, whether it's like at your limit and you're like projecting hard or you're like flashing boulders. It feels great to like feel like you really like own a style. So I think it's probably like 80-20, like seeking out boulders that are in my style versus not in my style. But I think most of all, what's important is that like I have a pretty clear list of boulders that I like, like are am even like willing to project. Um, like either on a trip, I have like 10 boulders that I'm like, I need to do these or I need to try them at least. Um, or like in Yosemite, I have kind of like a list of projects that like I need to do. Um, and because like the lines are better because they speak to me for whatever reason that I think has nothing to do with style um, and more just about aesthetics. Mm. So, yeah, I think like I like climbing out of my style because it opens up um, the opportunity to do more boulders on that list that don't fit my style. Um, but I'm not like choosing projects necessarily because um, it's really anti-style. If if a boulder is like anti-style and it's also like something I really want to do, then I'll absolutely try. But also if a boulder is like really in my style and I really, really want to do it because the line is great, then then I, I like want to do it just as badly. Is it mostly aesthetics you think that drives your climbing? Um, I like the history of climbs too. Like I like that Jade is a test piece mm. and um, yeah, that's just an example because we were talking about it earlier, but um, yeah, I kind of like the story behind climbs. Um, if I have like a friend trying it, it's always fun to try with other people. So yeah, I mean, it's hard to say it's like aesthetics necessarily, but like for some reason it's like something that you really want to do and I think a lot of people kind of like find this, like, like find themselves being drawn to a climb for kind of that, like mix of like aesthetic story and grade. Okay. Let's talk more about book club. And I want to, I want to talk about book club. I want to hear about that. I also want to hear about your injury. What do you think makes the most sense? Do you want to, do you want to start with the story behind the injury and yeah. make our way to yeah. book club? I think that, that seems logical. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to talk about, um, dealing with setbacks. And I know that your finger injury this spring was a really difficult setback. And I'm sure, uh, I mean, any climber that experiences a finger injury, it's scary, especially if it's the first time you have a bad finger injury. It's just, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's this tiny little thing that completely takes this thing that we love away from us. How did that happen? Okay. And, and when did that happen? Yeah. Um, it happened in mid June um, of 2022, um, and I had been in the gym like training pretty much exclusively for like two months or like a month and a half at that point, which is like maybe the longest like just gym stint I've done ever. And I was training for this trip to Rocklands, which 
I left for at the end of June. So it was like a week or two before going to Rocklands. Um, I was just climbing in the gym on like the spray wall and just like, wasn't even trying that hard, but just like popped my pulley on, mm. on um, this kind of thing. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was the first finger injury I've ever had. Um, I kind of thought that like my pulleys were like invincible since I've been climbing for so long, but um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why it happened. I was probably overtraining, but it's kind of annoying to like not really have an explanation for injuries. Um, mm. But I think that's just how it goes with a lot of finger injuries. Um, so yeah, that was that was like it was probably more like an emotional setback. Like I was just devastated. I was just like over it. Like okay, I just trained for a month and a half. Like just not like feeling that psyched about being in the gym and now I can't even climb outside for like the next four weeks or whatever. Um, but yeah, so then I still went to Rocklands and didn't climb for the first couple of weeks and was just like all time unmotivated. Um, it's hard to be there without being able to climb. Like there's really not very much to do. Um, so I should have just like done touristy things and gone on safari, but um, I didn't really have time to plan for that because it happened so, um, so soon before leaving. So yeah, that was, that was pretty, pretty devastating. Um, yeah. What happened? I mean, I assume you just started climbing as you were able to and, and kind of worked your way up, but I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing. How long was your trip again? It was two months. So I think eight weeks flat. Okay. So eight weeks, you don't climb for the first couple of weeks because you have this pulley injury and then somehow within two months you sent another v14 that's pretty amazing that's a really quick recovery from a finger injury thanks um yeah i, I guess like some background is i talked to um kara cooper who's in salt lake um she's awesome and knows a lot about fingers and it was like great to talk to someone who has some reassuring words that like it will grow back <laughs> Cause it feels like it'll never grow back. Totally. If you've ever done it, yeah. you're like, that's the end. <laughs> like, <laughs> my finger will never work again. Um, but yeah. Um, I, I think that she recommended taking like two weeks of like no climbing at all. Um, which was really good. Like, I don't think I really waited it for two weeks or like maybe I did some very like light, uh, finger stuff, but it was like basically two weeks, no exercise. Um, and then like really slowly and in a controlled way started waiting it for like another week and like with a water bottle I was waiting it um like so like two pounds or something mm. um and then I started I think I started climbing maybe a little bit earlier than um like people recommend or I guess I was like climbing like I was climbing on like the zero like moving around just getting blood into my hand but I started climbing like on moderates, like before five, um, probably three weeks into the trip. Um, so like three and a half weeks post injury or four weeks post injury. Um, but only on like left-hand slopers. Um, and yeah, I, I think like, I kind of, kind of like lost control of, of being able to rest after that. And it was hard to like stop myself from like wanting to climb more. But I think actually if you train for, a month and a half and then take four weeks off of climbing or off of training. Like that's probably good. Like you'll mm. probably like still have like your gains and just be like well rested. Like mm. obviously I wish I didn't take four weeks off, but I don't think it was that detrimental to my actual strength. Um, yeah. It was more like emotionally hard to not be climbing. 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, that is an interesting thing about climbers. Like I just, um, I just recorded an episode with Tyler Nelson, a follow-up that'll come out either right before this or right after this, I think. Um, not sure yet, but he, he talked about that, like that, you know, we're, we were talking a lot about finger strength and some of the latest research and, and stuff he's been geeking out about. But something that he said was, you know, towards the end of our conversation was just how like, as a general rule, he recommends most of his clients rest more than they do. And as climbers, we're just so neurotic. I mean, I'm a perfect example. Like we're just so neurotic of like, I'm going to lose all my gains if I take these two weeks off, like once a year, you know, mm-hmm. let alone like twice a year or let alone like, you know, between every big trip or whatever. Um, I don't know why it feels so scary, but it's, I, there's not that many other sports that are as bullheaded, I think, as we are as climbers, just trying to perform yeah. like 12 months out of the year, all year round. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably right. Like most people don't rest enough. And honestly, like, I feel like I've taken two week rests like more frequently than most people have. Um, either because like school got busy or because like I had a little injury or was like traveling or something. And, um, yeah, I think the first week back you feel kind of bad or like after a long rest, the first week back, you feel like rusty. And then like two or three weeks in after a rest, you're like, okay, I feel pretty good. (laughs) Mm -hmm, So I think it's just like, you need a break in period Mm -hmm. and then like you start to feel gains. What did it look like to ramp back up to trying book club? And what was it about book club? Um, did that climb speak to you for a specific reason? How did you end up trying it or or why did you end up choosing that one? Yeah, it wasn't on my list going into the trip um, because I don't know. It's like it looks a little newer and I haven't been to Rocklands. Um, I went once before, but it was for a very short trip and I actually like really hurt my ankle. So I haven't climbed very much in Rocklands before this trip. Um, and so like kind of all the classics were on my list and a lot of crimpy boulders. Um, so I was like, I don't think I'll get to book club and it's hard and I I know I'll need to put a lot of sessions into it. Um, but then like I actually got there and couldn't climb on anything basically. Um, and my group was, uh, hiking out to book club a bunch because they were all trying it. And so I was just there. And I like was like kind of looking at it like, oh, wait, like maybe I can try this. Like there are no crimps for the left hand on the entire thing. Like your fingers don't need to bend past 90 degrees for the whole thing. Um, So I was like, it's probably like fine to try. This was probably like four weeks in though, not like not like right away. Um, And yeah, and it was actually really good for ramping back up, like it's super physical. So um, every session felt like I had just been like lifting in the gym or something like <laughs> I was just getting wrecked, um, which was great. And I really like spread out my sessions because it was the only thing I could try for a while. Um, so I think I gained a lot of fitness on the boulder. Like the first time I tried it, I like had probably only climbed up to like the seven, maybe like on other boulders and rocklands um and couldn't do that many moves and then like once a week i'd try it and was like making bigger links um so yeah i mean it was it's definitely like a jump like probably four weeks after finger injuries you definitely should not be climbing on e14 but this one was like really quite well suited to finger injuries um and i wasn't going that hard on it at first um so it was just like really fun um, for me to be able to try hard. Can you describe it a little bit more? Yeah. Um, 
it's this like probably 15 foot boulder with like this perfect crack down the middle. Um, and it's like on that really amazing Rockland's like sandstone quartzite mix. Um, and it just like, it's on a rock art trail actually. Um, there's no rock art in the boulder, but like it's, it's just a boulder like along this pretty main trail. And there's like all these little like springbok deer things like jumping around the area. Um, and yeah, you just come up on it. and It's like this very perfect crack. There's all these perfect cracks in um, South Africa. So if you're a crack climber, you should go down there. Um, but it's, yeah, it's basically just like splitter and um, yeah, you can, you can finger, finger crack climate. Um, that's what Ethan Pringle did. And I, my argument is that it's not easier because like he is the unique combination of like being really good at crack climbing and also actually climbing D14. Um, but he's like, it's way easier to crack climb it. I don't think it is like, at least for me, it wouldn't have been, um, hmm. <laughs> because I'm way better at bouldering than crack climbing. But, um, yeah, so you basically, um, climb it like a series of left-hand, um, underclings where, you, and then you'll bring in the right to kind of like do these big, like, um, kind of powerful moves. And then there's like a foot first crux halfway through. And then the top, I do like this nice little finger lock. Um, so it's kind of a very fun um, mix of styles. Would you say that it's anti-style or was anti-style for you? Yeah, I think of the hard boulders I've done, it's maybe the least in my style. Um, but like I said, I'm actually very good at underclinging. So it's a little hard to say. Um, mm the feet are bad and like you need to get like really in your biceps, which like is in my style. So it's slow B, so it's not, but it's also like sort of in my wheelhouse. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And what did it look like for that one to come together? Um, I probably did all the moves within two sessions. Um, and then probably had it in like three pieces at three sessions and then like two pieces by four sessions. And then I think I did it on my fifth session. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, that leads us into more talk about projecting. I'm really curious to hear what you've learned from the last couple of years of so much focused, hard projecting. I mean, first off, just give us some context. Like, do you spend most of your time trying things that are really hard for you and take a lot of sessions or no? Do you spend more time doing things you can do quickly? What does the balance look like of those things? Um, I probably lean more towards projecting than most people. I like the like mental toll it takes. It's like the type of thing that you love and hate. You're like, while you're projecting, you're like, God, I wish I could just be done with this. And then like, once you're done projecting, you're like, I need... I need that feeling of, of having purpose. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think it depends. Like I, I probably in crags that are local, I lean towards projecting, but like I, I took a trip to Waco last winter for like a week maybe and did like the new area every day and didn't, didn't want to return to anything for more than a session. Mm. Um, so, and I think that's really fun too. Um, like trying to see what you can do in a session. Um or just like sampling a lot of different rock in an area. And I think also when you're projecting something for like weeks on end, you need to like at some point stand on top of a boulder or like do something that you feel proud of. Um, and so even like if I'm in Vegas, I'll like 
maybe go to the craft one day and like do something I haven't done before. Um, or just like have a fun day out. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I resonate with that. What grade range do you shoot for on those other days? Are you still trying to do something that's challenging for you? So you feel good about it or is it just whatever easy, easy climb sample, do a bunch of stuff? Um, I probably try to do like a V10. Okay. Yeah. Um, like hard enough where I kind of like feel like I tried that day and easy enough that like it's still like a fun day out. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense actually because I'm I was looking at your A day page uh, yesterday and today and you've done eighty V tens. Really? Yeah, you've done <laughs> eighty V tens. That's a lot of V tens. I mean, that's just V tens. That's that's, that's not V tens and harder. You've done something like let's see, fast math, like one hundred and fifty. V10, like double digit boulder problems, but like 80 V10s, which is way more than V9s or 11s, at least that you've kept track oh my of. God. So that's kind of funny. That's kind of perfect. <laughs> it sounds like that's your go to grade that you seek out. Yeah, I kind of just like was like, oh, I think it's around V10, but that's pretty funny that like it actually <laughs> is, is definitely V10. That I seek out. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's just a fun grade. Okay, this is going to take us back to your climbing philosophy. Tell me about excuses. Why does making excuses help your climbing? Yeah, um, I think like one part about projecting that is really essential is that like the moment that you like think that you can't do it, that's like when everything goes downhill. Like I think it's really important to maintain belief that you could do a boulder, even if like all signs say that you cannot. And I think that making excuses can often aid in that. So like if it was way too cold or way too warm one day, um, like a lot of boulders, yes, they make like crazy excuses about conditions where like the conditions are perfect and they're like, it's too like, I don't know, I guess it's always like too humid. Right. But, Oftentimes it's not too human. Um, but I think sometimes like making excuses about um, external factors is really helpful. Like if you're like, it's too cold today, then on a warmer day, maybe you'll do better, right? Even though like your physical um, ability hasn't changed, like if those external factors change, then you might have a better shot, um, which can be just really helpful for your mental game. Or like, oh, my skin wasn't like perfect this day. Like, well, maybe if you come back with perfect skin, you'll do this move that feels impossible. Um, And so I think like, yes, the extreme or even like not even the extreme, but like making too many excuses is detrimental. Like then you're like not like being realistic with yourself or like working on like your weaknesses. Um, But if you are like in the middle of a project and like you know that you can do it, then I think sometimes an excuse can be helpful for you because it's not like you're actually going to get better or stronger before the next session, but like something needs to change if you're going to have a different mental outlook on it. That's cool. So it's really about maintaining belief that you can do the boulder problem. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I didn't do it today, I'm going to find some external reason. I mean, this is great. I, I talked to Martin Keller earlier this year, I think. I'll, I'll share that episode for people in the show notes. One of my favorites um, for people listening, definitely go listen to Martin. But he talked about collecting excuses or really um, explanations. He made that, you know, he made that shift from excuses to explanations. 
if you can collect like 10 explanations as to why you sucked today, then that's 10 things that you can improve on for next session. And it just kind of gives you more control or agency or I don't know, it, it just gives you a few tangible things to think about for your next session. And um, I love this layer that you're adding to it, which is also, it helps you, it, it helps shift from, I'm just not able to do this to, I still can do this and here's why it didn't happen today. I think, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Do yeah, you have other I mean, examples? I, do, you, do you look for specific types of excuses or, or do you have go-tos? Yeah. Um, a, a big one for me actually is that it's too cold. Um, I think women run a lot colder or it just needs to be warmer for women. Um, and so oftentimes like if I'll go out with my male friends on a day that they think is perfect and I'm doing way worse than them. Um, I think like, even aside from it being an excuse, like I think it often is too cold or like I would perform better if it was a little bit warmer. Um, and yeah, I think other, other classic ones for me are like, oh, I didn't like sleep well, or like I was thinking too much about work today and I wasn't like focused enough. Um, like those type of like mental excuses, um, can be really helpful for me. Um, because yeah, I'm just like a big believer that your mind is more powerful than your body Mm. in a way. Um, so yeah, I think like, yes, you need to be realistic about like, if you can't do a boulder and you're like really not doing well, like don't plug in 10 sessions on something that like is way too hard for you. Sure. But, um, I think having like being a little overconfident and like having your minds like be like really sure that you can do something is always really helpful. Mm. Are there any other things as far as projecting that you feel like you do very well or things that you feel are very important for projecting that you see other people missing? Um, yeah, I think, um, I'm never that concerned about doing something fast. Like some people come to a boulder and they have the goal of doing it in one session. And I almost never have that goal. Um, I'm okay with like just going really easy on myself and being, um, kind of like playing the long game, like being like, I, I want to do this boulder at some point in my lifetime. Um, and it absolutely doesn't need to be today. And you know, if 10 other people at the boulder are doing better than me, like that doesn't necessarily like shake my confidence. Um, and yeah, just comparison is a trap and, um, kind of like going really easy on myself. Um, and I think that like opens up a lot of space for you to be really analytical with your, um, climbing. If you're like kind of constantly thinking that you can improve versus like getting frustrated and like kind of, um, yeah, getting frustrated because you're not doing something quickly um, and instead of playing the long game with yourself and thinking always about how you can be improving. Mm. I love that. On that note of focusing on what you can be improving at, what are you focused on right now in your own climbing? Is there any, do you have any big goals that you've been working on? You know, projects that are undone or things that you're focusing on right now in your own climbing to try to get to the next level for you? Yeah. Um, I, I feel ready for, (laughs) I guess everyone feels ready for this, but I feel ready for like a level up, um, physically, um, whether that is like climbing the next grade or doing something that I just thought was impossible for myself. Um, I feel, I feel ready to go after that. Um, and so I've been working 
in the gym, I've been working almost exclusively on my weaknesses. Um, so I, I guess I always am, but like I've been doing um, kind of simulators of, of moves that I don't think or that I didn't think I could do before and um, doing a lot of like open hip power boulders. Um, and yeah, like really diving into like why my power isn't better. Yeah. Is that, was that your question? Sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I'll just ask another one. So the simulators, that's interesting. Are you, are you setting simulators or replicas for specific projects you want to do? Yeah. Um, I haven't really done this before, but it's kind of fun to try. And it's like, even if it's not a perfect simulator, it's probably still making you stronger. I don't have a board at home or anything. So I'm kind of like at the mercy of like whatever is in the gym and if they like choose to change the spray wall or whatever. And I have a, a good friend in uh, the Bay Area who has a really, really nice spray wall. So at his house, like I can set a simulator that will stay there. Um, but yeah, I'm not like fully sold on the like simulators for your project. Um, type of thing but I think it's generally helpful for like if you can't do a move it's probably a weakness of yours so you should like set something um, that like accordingly works that weakness what are some other staples for you in your training as far as you know you just said you spend most of your time focusing on working weaknesses what are some go-tos and how do you think about how those are going to help you in your in your climbing yeah um I do a lot of strength training, so lifting, and I worked with Natasha Barnes to kind of like build this base of um, of strength and honestly just find the lifting really fun. So I'll try to lift two to three times a week when I'm like in a training cycle, um, and then I'll do like two days of like power. So I know people do like strength blocks and then power blocks, but I think it's kind of boring. So I do um, like a strength day, then a power day. Um, and, um, for power I'll do, I've been doing these new things where I do like, uh, three weighted pull-ups and then five, like really fast unweighted pull-ups. Um, and it looks kind of silly, but I think it might be helping. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, like I'll do some campus boarding and generally just work on like fast, powerful movements on the spray wall. How long have you been training that way? Um, maybe like a year or two. Okay. Yeah, maybe like that. I've, I've been more structured recently and like um, kind of like written down um, like training schedules and logs for myself. Um, and that's probably been a change over the past year or two. But I've maybe always sort of like trained like this, but like been working on my power. But the lifting is like new as of maybe a year ago. And how has that, how have you noticed that in your climbing? Have you noticed certain lifts being really helpful in your climbing? Yeah, I think. Um, probably like deadlift and bench, I think are most helpful. Um, it's a little bit hard to say because it doesn't really like translate perfectly the way that like hang boarding does, but it's mm. like, I feel like all my like stabilizers, um, are stronger and like my, my entire just like core, like, I guess like you call it like your posterior chain or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. I feel kind of <laughs> insecure <laughs> about not knowing anything about training, but like, I feel like just, yeah, my, my head to toe is just stronger and I'm yeah. like I'm just I'm definitely I definitely like put on muscle too so um I think I feel myself using it more and just like being more activated um which is cool that is cool and I'm also curious about the balance because 
that's that's cool to hear and it's um it's becoming more normal but it's probably still pretty rare in the big picture of things like taking an athlete like you who's so outdoor project focused but then who's also training in the gym with weights um it just seems like in our current climbing culture it's a lot of one or the other people mm-hmm. that that train all the time or people that just climb outside what does the balance look like for you yeah um like if i'm if i'm actually climbing outside like i'm not in Berkeley for like a month or whatever, then oftentimes I'll do a session outside and then either I'll go to a like a weight room or a, a gym that night or I'll go the next day. Um, but I'm doing way less. Like I'll do, I'll probably only do that like once or twice a week versus in Berkeley, I'll go like two to three times. Um, and I won't go lift if I've or if I already feel wrecked from the session it's just like if I want to like kind of get more wrecked then I'll go to a gym and I think what's nice about lifting is that like you don't actually need a rock gym like Mm. here in Bishop like you can still like go and lift weights (laughs) like most like small mountain towns still have access to weights um but I mean if if um if there's like totally no access to the gym like I'm not pressed I'll just be climbing outside that's interesting do a lot of the people that you climb with do that as well or are you an outlier? Because the perception from the outside, just like watching a lot of the the videos and you you know Mellow Channel and um, all this content, it seems like a lot of the top outdoor boulderers pretty much just climb. But is yeah yeah? Are you an outlier? Or is that common? Um, I don't really think I'm an outlier. Like, if I'm on a trip international or like yeah, or just somewhere with like out easy access to the gym then I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in the gym at all. I'm just climbing outside. And I think that's true of almost everyone um, who's like a pro climber, pro boulder, like very little gym time when like actually in project mode. But I think if you're like somewhere with like a major city nearby, then like it can definitely be nice, especially when the weather is bad um, or just like the session kind of didn't go your way. It can be nice to hit the gym um, and either like, I think most people are, are like doing like little training supplementary stuff versus like full on gym sessions or like hangboarding sessions. Um, but just kind of these like, yeah, supplementary exercises, I think a lot of people do. Um, but I'm not entirely sure. Okay. And then how many, do you have any guess? Like how many days a year do you think you climb outside? Um, per week. Sure. Um, if I'm like, if I'm like, it's winter, like conditions are good, then probably four times a week I'll climb outside. But I, I mean, I try to be climbing as much as possible. Like I don't like having just gym time, but I think like summer or like the like May, June season is, is tricky for, for bouldering in the U S. Okay. Do you want to tell me about the never ready Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I do. As a cautionary tale. <laughs> For all you never readies out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is the never ready? The never ready is a term that I lovingly call people who love like climbing in the gym and training in the gym. And they love like having like ostensibly an outdoor goal that they're like super excited to train for but they're never ready for their goal and they never want to go try because they're not ready 
and to the never readies, I think that personally, I think that you are ready and you were born ready and you should just go try. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, my personal philosophy is that it's always good to, to go try your project if, if that's what you're psyched on it. And if it's accessible to you, then definitely go try. Love it. That's awesome. Okay. Let's see. What else do we have here? What do you think it's going to take for you to climb V15, Katie? Um, I think it's it's going to take um, finding the right one and getting better at my weaknesses and like a specific weakness that that boulder targets. And yeah, I think I think it's mostly about finding the drive and kind of the right moment more than any physical change that needs to be made. Okay, that's cool. You've climbed five V14s now and a bunch of V13s. Have you tried V15s? And are there any that you've put a significant amount of time into yet? Um, yes, I have tried V15s. I'm like not really remembering off the top of my head, which they would, I guess I've tried a bunch in like Colorado. Um, but I've never put like a serious, like, more than one session in i've kind of just been there and like other people are trying so i try um that type of session but i haven't ever gone to one with the intention of like it being my project um but yeah i'm i'm very excited to try it it's, that's a big that's a big goal this winter so nice yeah not to put you on the spot you don't have to share what it is but i'm just curious do you have a specific thing in mind um yeah i have a i have a few ideas it's still november so um still kind of project shopping, but, um, I really want to try the nest. Um, I don't really think it's in my style, so maybe our session will go terribly and I will cross it off my list. I don't know, but that'd be cool to try. Um, and then the two others that I'm thinking aren't actually V15, but I think they'd be like basic, they'd be a level up for me, which is, um, satisfactory. Um, but that would be Kintsugi. Um, because the like newer beta that, um, people are doing, which makes it a touch easier. Um, I don't think I can reach. Mm. Um, so I'm going to need to come up with something, um, that works for my body or kind of do the original beta, which, um, was graded V15. Um, so yeah, I think that'll be pretty next level. Um, and then I want to try Spectre, um, which is maybe like 14 or 15 if you can't do it, um, with your foot on. So, yeah, I think that's also another another one I'm super psyched to potentially project this winter. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I love I love that actually. I love how you think about personal grades like that because of course, like that makes perfect sense. Um and a lot of these things probably should have multiple grades depending on who's trying them and their size, dimensions, whatever. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. Okay, I got this question from Jacob. I thought this was a good question. It made me really curious too. Jacob writes, the number of hard boulder problems has grown exponentially in the last few years. When are we going to see a female ascent of V16? And who is in the running to claim that title besides Katie herself? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think very soon. <laughs> yeah? I guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's like a lot it of women like climb V14. Um Maybe Ashima and maybe someone in Europe have climbed V15. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, it's kind of all about style. Like 
I think like not that many like short people have tried or have climbed to be 16. Like Sean Rabatou is short and a lot of Japanese climbers are short. And so it's like definitely possible to be like, you know, five, five and climb V16. Um, so I think that what actually like holds a lot of um, women back or like not necessarily holds back, but like makes the progress um, kind of like not as quick as for men is that boulders get put up often by a male first ascensionist and they're um, the beta that kind of gets repeated is for someone who is closer to like 510 maybe. Um, and so women need to find their own way up um, up a boulder. And oftentimes like maybe it's not actually harder beta, but it just takes longer to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've climbed with multiple women who could climb V16 like this year. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a matter of like finding the right one. Um, and like it'll take time. Like I don't think anyone is going to climb or any woman is going to climb V16 in like two sessions or one session. But if the right one is there and um, that person has enough time and like the dedication to project in, then like absolutely um, it could happen soon. That's awesome. That's really exciting. Um, it makes me think of hypnotized minds. Have you looked at that or thought about that boulder at all? Because I know Rustam did that. He's mm-hmm. how how tall is he? He's he's really really short, isn't he? Isn't he like five two or three or something like that? Maybe I don't think he's quite that short, but maybe he is. I've I've never actually met him, so I'm not sure. Um, but I have seen it, yeah, and um, it does look like definitely possible if you're short. I mean, like one example is Ryuchi in Japan. It's like five, five or five, four, maybe, maybe even smaller. And like has climbed multiple V16s, I think. So yeah, um, there's definitely a few out there. Awesome. That's super exciting. I might've been totally wrong. It looks, I'm just doing a quick Google search and he might be closer to five, six. I'll look, I'll find, I'll find out. <laughs> I'll find out. I'll have to do the centimeter to to inches conversion, but I can do uh-huh, that later. That's always obviously, I know, I know with feet and inches. Okay, um, do you want to talk about the work that you do? That's kind of the last like big thing I have on my list here to talk about. I think it's it's so cool to hear what you do, and I'm I'm really curious to hear what you've learned from starting this path into uh, data science and studying the climate and what we can do and what's scary about it and what's hopeful about it and all that. Maybe we can start off with this question. Are you trying to become a professional climber? Do you want to become a professional climber or do you enjoy balancing the climbing that you do with the work that you do? Yeah. Um, I think at this point I would say I I am a professional climber. Um, I do that part-time and I work my job as a data scientist, um, part-time. So yeah, I mean, most people don't get paid at all to climb. So I guess I am a professional climber, but I don't know. It's like nothing actually changed. It's not like I was like a <laughs> recreational climber before. <laughs> right, right, um, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do get paid to climb and I also work. Um, so it's pretty much half and half. I work like 30 hours when I'm um, in Berkeley training and I work closer to 20 when I'm like on the road or climbing outside. How did you manage to do that? Because that, you know, going back to what you said earlier in the conversation about how there's not that many professional climbers, but a lot of people kind of acting like they are and putting climbing first. Um, mm-hmm. 
How can other people do that? Do you have any recommendations? Is it possible for people who work remotely to navigate or, um, I guess, how did you make that happen for yourself? Obviously, being a pro climber, you have some financial income from that, so you, you can take some of the pressure off. But just uh, logistically, how did you manage to make that happen with this company that you work for? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was very recently that I started getting paid um, as a climber. So definitely my primary income for the past year has just been my data science job. Um, and I think that, like, number one, it's really hard to uh, like restructure your life for climbing if you want to make a lot of money. Um, yeah, it's a, it's kind of tough. I guess people with like really high paying tech jobs are often remote and expectations aren't that high. But um, I, I chose a job that I like care a lot about. And um, and I like when I was getting hired, like kind of laid down the groundwork that um it like that i am very um particular about how i spend my time working and i don't like taking meetings because then i need like ripping wi-fi and if i'm at the boulder i can't be in a meeting so um yeah i think like kind of finding a workplace where um people respect your your personal time and like perspective respect that you have this um pursuit outside of work that you're really passionate about um and i think that you'd be surprised how many employers do respect that or like are on their way to like that being a norm um which is awesome um because then kind of it opens the door to like people who have um like less comfortable jobs than myself like i recognize that like yeah i'm very educated and like had the freedom early on to kind of set my life up um for working part-time and having a ton of free time and that's like not something everyone can do and like if you have a family like mm -hmm. you have like mouths to feed and right. i'm just by myself so um yeah i think that like yes it comes with a lot of privilege but i hope that like we're moving in a direction where everyone can prioritize their own like out of work pursuits more um and like yeah remote work is like huge for being able to go climbing more and just like kind of non-traditional um, work structures i think are something that people who want to prioritize climbing should seek out. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the best thing that came out of COVID, you know, honestly, COVID. it's, yeah. it, we're still, our work culture here in America can still, it still has a lot of room for improvement, but at least we've moved the needle a little bit and we're closer to what many other countries have been doing for a long time, which is having more flexibility and time off and understanding the value in that as companies hiring employees and things. Mm -hmm. um, totally. Yeah, I hope so too. I hope that we continue to see more of a cultural shift in that direction because it's, I, there's so many, there's so much research on it. There's so many pilot studies that have showed amazing productivity when companies value their employees' time and, and passions and give them more time off and freedom and things like that. Like people are happier, they show up more enthusiastically, they work harder when they're at work, mm -hmm. things yeah. like that. But I'm curious, just from yeah. a um, very tangible point of view like how did that conversation go how, how did you kind of think about laying down that groundwork as you said and painting those expectations in a way that didn't make them just dismiss you or want to just move on to the next candidate I mean is it because of your education that you kind of the ball was in your your court or any any thoughts on that on how to navigate yeah. those conversations for people 
Um, well, first of all, I've worked for, or I'm like a member of a co-op. So like, it's really not a traditional, um, work structure and I love hourly time. So like if I work less, I'm paid less. Uh, but I have met a lot of climbers who were working full time and then like told their employer that it like wasn't working for them and that they wanted to drop down to like part-time or at least like be in fewer meetings or something. Um, and like how, or just like be able to dictate when they want to work, um, instead of nine to five. And I, I think for most people it goes really well because if you're an employee, you have a lot more say than you think. Like it takes so many hours to onboard someone. And like, if you work for someone, like you really know the intricacies of your job in a way that like no one else does. Um, and so I think like first viewing yourself as not replaceable and like having the confidence to kind of bring up that conversation um, is like the first step. And I think being really explicit about like your asks, like I, for example, like don't like taking um, afternoon meetings because that's when I like to go climbing. So I um, like tell clients that I work with that I like to meet in the morning and like everyone's pretty receptive to that. Um, So just like knowing like kind of your, your wants and like not being outrageous with your requests. Like Mm. I'm not like, yeah, I'm not like, I only want to work like two months of a year, but (laughs) like I knew I had this trip to Rocklands lined up when I got hired. And I told them like really early, like non-negotiable, I'm going to South Africa, like July and August, I have plane tickets. Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and I, I made it work there. Like I did work like 10 hour weeks there. Um, so just finding access to Wi-Fi um, is really helpful for being able to work remote, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. I want to hear how you how you got involved with the co-op that you're working with right now, because you got a master's at Stanford in computer science and environmental engineering. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did this get on your radar? How did you find your way to data science and working on climate stuff with this co-op? Yeah. Um, yeah. As you said, my, my undergrad is computer science and Um, I had a lot of, uh, or I had a machine learning focus. And so it was like almost entirely math, um, instead of like software engineering. Um, so that's like, yeah, data science, like can mean a lot of things, but, um, part of the stuff I do is very like kind of statistics and machine learning focused. Um, and so I kind of like sought out a job like that. Um, and then I think when I finished undergrad, I pivoted a lot towards this climate focus because I realized that I like wasn't going to be motivated if I just worked um, for any tech company. And I specifically wanted to be involved in climate and um, find climate policy like really impactful and um, interesting. So um, yeah, this this job was kind of perfect for me um, because it it's I work for someone, a co-op named Catalyst Cooperative. Um, check us out if you want. Um, uh, and my my former roommate, his friend, is also a member, so he kind of flagged it for me. Um, and yeah, it, and basically we create like a data pipeline of government energy data um, and make it open source and accessible for clean energy advocates. Um, and then like our profit comes from, um, contracting to clean energy nonprofits and doing their, um, data analysis work. And then like a lot of our infrastructure is built out with, um, different grants. Okay. So you're sharing that data with sustainable energy companies that can then take that data and make 
pitches and try to come up with solutions, that sort of thing? Yeah, we're basically taking public data that is unusable in its published form mm. uh, and putting it into like nice, clean, organized um, databases. And anyone can use the databases, but primarily it's used by researchers and um, nonprofits and like clean energy advocates who are making like policy pitches on um, kind of the clean energy transition. Okay. That's that's super cool. I'm curious. So we've got a bunch of climbers listening to this. What are some of the things that you've learned in studying climate, working in climate that you wish more people knew? Yeah, um, I think, first of all, anyone can be involved. Um, you definitely do not need a degree um, of any sort to be involved in climate. And it's like one of the fastest growing fields. So um, it's a great time to get involved if you want, um, either through like activism or um, kind of restructuring your career path or what you study. And I think it can mean so many things. So it's really about like what speaks to you, like um, kind of actually this like grid infrastructure and like clean energy question is one that's really interesting to me. But for other people, it's about like oceans and ag, agriculture. And um, yeah, you can find a lot of different sub areas um, within climate and energy. So there's like infinite amounts of work that needs to be done. And any, any amount that you're willing to do is helpful. So mm. like, I think the number one thing is like, don't be afraid to figure out how you can get involved. And what about on like a personal day-to-day -day lifestyle level? Are there any things that you've, are there, are there any changes that you've made to your lifestyle or that you would encourage people to think more about? Yeah. Um, I think like, well, I used to be vegetarian and I'm not really anymore. And I think it's actually because I've leaned a less, less on the like personal sacrifices side and instead kind of like come to terms with it by just trying to be really conscious about my choices. Um, so like the classic one is like flying, like, yes, like ideally you don't fly, like that's your lowest carbon footprint option and for me i'm not quite there yet i don't want to like make that sacrifice um and so i try to fly less and every time i do fly i feel guilty about it and um kind of like i don't think you need to like think of it like okay so i flew and now I, how do i offset it um i think it's just like okay yeah that that added to my carbon footprint like as a whole i'm gonna try to bring my carbon footprint down and i think that like actual carbon accounting can be a trap, like trying to put a number on how much carbon you used. And instead, like being conscious about like the brands you support and like mm. kind of where you used your money and how you redistribute your wealth. Um, and like on a community level, like um, encouraging your neighbors to vote and like kind of these like intangible things um, that kind of just lead to like a more empathetic and um, kinder world to each mm. other and to the planet. That's a cool answer. That's thanks for that. That's not what I was expecting either. That was that was really interesting. Cool. Yeah, that I mean it just sounds like awareness, having some awareness around the things that we do and how those the impacts that those things have. It sounds like is kind of the what I took away from what you just said. Um mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I also have this note again from your mom. <laughs> she was telling me about <laughs> some of the work that you do and she said one line here is that 
she can tell you, again, talking about you, obviously, she can tell you anything you want to know about the electrical grid, and then in parentheses, also stuff you don't want to know and how it can all fall down. <laughs> I thought that was really funny, and it in this kind of like black mirror, sort of like morbid curiosity sort of vein, I'd love to hear uh, a little bit about that if you have anything you can share. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, definitely... I can't tell you anything you want to know. Like <laughs> some people can tell you anything you want to know and respect, but I'm not quite there yet. Um, but yeah, I, th I do think it's interesting. Like I spent the first 20 years of my life, like not caring at all where I get my like electricity from, like what powers your light bulbs and like how exactly do you heat your house? Like what is the fuel for that? Um, like, I didn't even know that, like, most heat is, like, from gas, right? Like, that connection is, like, pretty abstract for a lot of Americans. Um, so, yeah, I think I had this moment where I was like, wow, it's actually crazy. Like, the, like, pipeline from, like, oil to, like, what I see or, like, yeah, just, like, the fossil fuel industry is insane. And, like, this stuff that they're backing, um, like, you know, there's this new like Supreme court case where like, it's about, um, like native children being adopted and like, Oh, guess what? Like, like the fossil fuel industry is like paying for the lawyers that like are, you know, defending the like people who want anyways, <laughs> mm -hmm. they're involved with any, like everything. And they have like so much money and influence um, that it's actually going to permeate into like every aspect of um, of our capitalist society. Mm. So, yeah, I think like on a nitty gritty level, it's funny to me um, every day when I'm like coming through these data sets of uh, government energy data and like this random like power plant operator has like like completely botched their like accounting for like their random coal generator and uh like all the data is like super messed up and they're like it's good to go like i filled out the form like let's hit submit and yeah like this is actually important data and the system is old and yeah and very complex so all sorts of crazy things are baked into our grid <laughs> mm. um but yeah what about I don't know if that was really an answer <laughs> well yeah i mean I was I was looking for maybe a little more doom and gloom. Any any like kind of ca catastrophes that you can kind of imagine just bringing the whole thing down? Yeah, I mean climate change. Like right, um, right. For example, like in California, PG and E, our utility, has been really bad about um, repairing old uh, old transmission lines and like forest fires that are caused by like drier forests and hotter temperatures basically can bring down the entire grid in California. Um, and like, you know, if you have rooftop solar because you have like a nice house in Berkeley, then you're set. But like, I mean, you might not be set because maybe your house is going to be on fire, but like, you know, like everyone else can be kind of in a blackout and like the richest, um, yeah, the wealthiest areas will be okay. And I think people mm. in, in Texas kind of see this a lot too with, um, with ERCOT because they're uh, basically on their own grid and not, and, and they can't get um, kind of like backup electricity from other states. So yeah, it, I think the crazy thing about the, um, the grid is that it will favor people who have more income. Mm. Um, yeah. Like so many things. 
like so, Japanese. Like so many old <laughs> like systems. Like the rest of the world. Like the rest of everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about hopeful things? Is there anything that you're excited about in climate or renewable energy that you think could drastically improve the grid or the way energy works or where it comes from or the ways it's distributed in this country? Anything like that that you're excited about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say I'm mostly excited. Um which is great. Um, and recently, the most exciting thing has been the passage of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is just like one big climate bill. Basically, it's like the first like federal energy policy that's like ever happened. So um, if you are a homeowner, you should definitely take advantage of like the tax incentives that let you get an electrical electric vehicle or a heat pump. Um, and if you're not a homeowner and you're part of like a community that's been impacted by um, like the closure of a coal plant or like other kind of fossil fuel um, assets, then um, there's a bunch of um, kind of tax incentives written into like re reboost and kind of bolster the economy um, in these towns. So I think it should impact like almost every American if um, executed correctly. And and um, yeah, it's just like the first thing that's like ever happened um, on a federal level. Mm. Um, but I think like more importantly, on a local level every day, I feel like I see something that like makes me um, hopeful. And like, yes, I live in Berkeley and like a lot of like very liberal policies happen there. But um, I feel like this change of people starting to care and be conscious and like call out um, call out when something is fucked up and um, when we're exploiting people and the planet um, unnecessarily. I think it's interesting that a lot of the examples that you just gave are around policy and legislature and things like that versus like technologies or things like that that are being developed. Is that interesting to you? Do you Can you see yourself like getting involved more in policy or politics or anything like that in your lifetime? Um, yeah, I, I, I do think that's interesting. Like, one big thing that people like to say about um, the energy transition is that they say like, we have all the pieces we need to do it, which is sort of true. Um, and if you're like a chemist or something and you're really into like hydrogen, like, yes, like go study hydrogen. Like it's not for me. I don't love chemistry. Um, and yeah. And so like something like green hydrogen is like technology that like makes me excited and like needs more work. And, um, yeah, but I think like something that everyday people like me who aren't chemists and people who just want to be involved in climate, like I think your biggest impact can be in policy and in like wealth distribution. Um, and yeah, I think like on a basic level, it's about restructuring how you think about your consumerism and um, kind of one thing that climbers are really good at is restructuring the way we like live our lives and the way we prioritize like relationships and things that aren't material objects and like amassing wealth. And so I think like climbers are just perfectly set up to kind of like be leaders in uh, mm. the climate movement and um, yeah, kind of just like rethink the way that we, um, we use our, our resources and, and the way we treat people. Well, Katie Lamb, thank you. That might be a great note to end on and a great note to leave people with, unless there's anything great. else that you that you want to share. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you want to talk about or any final words of um, 
encouragement or anything else you wish people spent more time thinking about? Um, anything else before I let you go? I don't think so. I feel like we covered it all. How could Do we you, not? <laughs> <laughs> in two hours, yeah. Do you have that feeling in your brain right now where you're like, what did we just talk about? Like, how has it been? Totally, yeah. yeah. That happens every time I finish an interview. It's like, was that interesting? Did I say anything that made sense? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I have that feeling like when you're like have to do something for school that you haven't really like prepared for, but you're like, I'm just going to talk. <laughs> I'm just going to go for it. I don't know, like that type of like presentation, you have like a kind of like rough slide deck together. But yeah. other than that, you're just swinging it. Well, That's you crushed it. It was great. Thank you. I really appreciate your time, Katie. You're awesome. Good luck. Um, have fun in Bishop. I assume you're going to try you. Inspector and some other hard yeah, things. Hopefully. So we'll yeah, see. <laughs> good luck. I'll be rooting for you. Thank you. You too out there. Thanks. The yeah, here for 10 more days and then uh, going to see the family for Thanksgiving. So life's good. Awesome. Sweet. Have fun. All right. Thank you. You too. And uh, for everyone listening, I will link to all things Katie Lamb in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Everything that was mentioned that was relevant to share in this conversation, I'll add links for it along with some of my favorite climbing videos of Katie. And I'll try to find some videos with those white pants that we talked about (laughs) (laughs) as well. So check all that out, thenuggetclimbing.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have fun climbing out there. Be safe. And we will see you next time. Hey, friends, before you go, don't forget to check out the Arcteryx film Free As Can Be. I watched it over the summer. I absolutely love the film. And if you love climbing, I'm sure you'll dig it, too. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Also, be sure to check out Rhino Skin Solutions. These are earth-grown products made to help support your precious skin so you can sweat less, go longer, and climb harder on the rock. My favorite product by far is the Repair Cream, which does wonders to help my skin recover faster between sessions, but I use their other products as well. Check them all out. Go to rhinoskinsolutions.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your order. And finally, don't forget to check out the Grasshopper Board. Check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing or visit grasshopperclimbing.com to find out where you can find a board and try it out for yourself. Be sure to tell them I sent you. And when you are ready to get your very own grasshopper board, you can save a lot of money on your border. And that is it, my friends. Thank you for hanging with me until the very end. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Much love to all of you. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time. We got the right stuff. We put the hammer right down. Wanna be like us? You better stick around. If you want it, you gotta prove it. Like we do it. Like we do it. There's no one can do it like we do it. There's no one can do it like we do it. Like we do it, like we do it, like we do it, like we do it, cause no